What up, boys and girls? This is your boy, Prakash Amitraj, and you are about to listen to me on The Brothers on Tennis. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? This is your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, we got a good one for you today, <laughs> man. Talk about excited, excited. We've got the one, the only, Mr. Prakash Amitraj <laughs> on the show today, folks. Prakash, what up, man? Oh man, I was I was so happy to get your message. I mean, you guys always put a smile on my face when I listen to you guys. So uh, a pleasure to be on. Oh, it is so good to have you on here, my man. We have all we have just been a big fan of yours, Bryce and I. And oh man, we are just looking to really, really chomp it up with you, Bryce. How you feeling about my boy Kosh? I am excited <laughs> because you know one of the things that we've always talked about is how thankful we really are for like the tennis channel. Yes, we remember the days when there was no tennis channel, right? And we were scrapping for just any little tennis we could find on the weekends on like CBS or or that. <laughs> And um, and one of the things that the Tennis Channel has done recently is they've kind of brought in a new crop yes. of of analysts and people on 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 the show. You know, Nicholas Monroe and uh, our guy, I always Mark Knowles, yep. and you know, some newer people, yep. Jan Michael Gamble. Yep. Uh, but when Prakash came on, yes. we were like, okay, level. <laughs> yeah, there's the firecracker <laughs> right there. <laughs> there's our guy. So, uh, so yes, we, we are just very thankful, Prakash, that you're taking time to speak with us today. We want to, you. you know, for our audience that doesn't know as much about your background, we want to be able to educate them a little bit on that. And then we want to tap into your analyst brain a little bit uh, and get your insight on, on, on the game today. So um, with that, Isaac. Let's get it going. Yeah, let's get it going. And I mean, honestly, because the first thing we want to just talk with you about or have you expound upon is just the fact that you grew up in a very, very famous tennis family. I mean, folks, I, you should know. And if you don't know, shame on you. You should know about <laughs> B.J. Amitraz. Let's just put it on out there. B.J. Amitraz, one of the well-known tennis players back in the day. I mean... Prakash, talk to us about just growing up in that type of an ha a household with a professional tennis playing father and, you know, and just everything around that. Please, uh, please uh, t tell us about those experiences. Well, you know, I I'll say, look, any situation obviously comes with uh, blessings and, of course, challenges at the same time. Right. And, you know, I, I wouldn't change a single thing about my upbringing for, for the life of me. I mean, I've... I've said this my whole life. My my two greatest heroes have always been my father and Muhammad Ali. Um, mm. You know, I, I draw from them every single day. They, uh, ironically, they served together uh, at the United Nations as messengers of peace directly under Kofi Annan. Um, but that was sort of, you know, after after Pops' tennis and everything. But go, going back to my childhood, you know, it's it's weird because on one hand, I have all these baby pictures with, you know, Everyone from, you know, the presidents to uh, Boris Becker and Jimmy Connors, McEnroe. And I mean, I was on my second passport by the time I was two and a half years old because I was, <laughs> I, I was growing up around the game. Pops was still playing. I was born in 83, kind of, I would probably say at the at the height of, of VJ's fame. You know, he had he was coming off another quarterfinal at Wimbledon. He had been in the top 10, made the WCT top eight, the Masters a few times. He had just starred in a James Bond movie. So he had kind of, you know, transcended sport a bit. He was the real first professional athlete 
to ever come out of India and then on top of that become such a superstar. So it was it, it was a little bit surreal, but Pops kept it so real for me. So I didn't I didn't really know better, you know. Um, so I, I give a lot of credit to my parents for that. And as far as getting into tennis, I've seen a lot of parents, and I'm sure you guys have too, that you know, are, are overbearing and they push their kids and it makes them really hate the game. Yeah. And I think the fact that uh, Pops let me develop my own love for it and never once forced me to pick up a racket and play, I think that's what allowed me to develop. Uh, I mean, look, I, I'll eventually, uh, God willing, get married and all this stuff, but I will always refer to tennis as my first love. And I give, I give Pops that credit. I mean, I would literally remember the feeling of being in class, you know, 10 years old, and you're staring at the clock because you just could not wait to get home and practice that chip and charge. <laughs> it, it, was, it was never about, oh, this is the sport I'm good at. Let me play it. Honestly, it was just, it, it came down to like art. Like it gave me pure joy to play the game. Wow. That is awesome. And, and you know, not, to, I mean, we know your father's VJ and all that, but let's give your uncle some shine too. He was. Uh, a professional player as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, he was really the, he was the first. My, uh, my father's older brother, Anand, he was sort of, you know, the, the child prodigy. He was very good in tennis. He, he was a genius in chess, brilliant at school. Vijay, the middle child, was actually the sick one. He was, oh. I mean, he was, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis as a kid, and it, it wasn't, in fact, TB. It was just severe asthma and he was actually in a hospital like nine months a year his mom had to go to the school take notes bring it back to the hospital and teach him so when they couldn't really afford tennis lessons <laughs> grandmom just kind of scrounged up and came up with the money just so that vj would have kind of a fair shot at life you wow. know and and that's really where sport came from and and anand the older son was already very good so vj ended up picking up the sport really for health reasons but then you know, towards the mid-teens, latter teens, VJ just kind of uh, took over. And, um, and then, but for the next 20 years, uh, VJ always says this, he would have never played so long and had such a long career on the tour if it, if it wasn't for his brother playing alongside him. Wow. wow, that's some insight. I had never heard that story and, before. And see, this is why I love doing interviews. Because <laughs> Bryce and I are sitting here looking at each other like, really? What? We had no clue. God, I love getting this type of an insight. Man, Prakash, thanks for sharing that. Because, yeah, Absolutely. we had no idea. That's insane. Wow. It's Incredible. A, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing. And you got to, I mean, look, as a kid, you just, you get this wealth of experience. You know, I mean, I, I literally, at nine years old, 10 years old, I, I, I had hit tennis balls with Laver, with Ken Rosewall, with all wow. these guys. So it was, I mean, I was like, you know, I hear Kobe, who's, you know, I'll put him up as one of my heroes. I balled, you know, for, for a month, you know, when he passed earlier this year. Mm -hmm. To this day, I still, I, I read his writings and listen to his words literally every single day. I, I model so much of, you know, what I do after him, but I'd listened to him this one time and he's talking about how he was such a nerd for the game. Mm -hmm. You know, he, yeah. he would geek out with, oh my God, that's that kind of net on the rim as opposed to this kind of net. And it would make a different sound when, you know, the ball went through it. And yeah. I was the exact same way as a kid, you know, little things. You guys are going to literally laugh right now, but you know, everyone used to play with the turning grips back in the day. Right. right. 
But right. Turner Grip used to come with the red tape at the end of the grip. Mm-hmm. But, but, but Pete, who was, you know, just the man, uh, he used to throw on those Turner Grips and put a little white tape at the top. And I'm just like, man, that looks so good. <laughs> I, I, used to, I used to put little white tape at the top of my grip, you know, when I was a kid. It, it was these little things, but just to show you that it was, it was all love, you know? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's so awesome, Prakash. Man, and, and Prakash, one thing I wanted to ask you, because funny enough, one of my actual favorite low-key uh, tennis players on the women's side is Ali Risk. So <laughs> people laugh at me because they were like, you like Ali? I was like, I love me some Ali Risk. Don't clown with my Ali Risk. How has it been like bringing her into the family, into the arbitrage family, now that she's married to, I believe it's your cousin, right? It's Steven, yes, right? Yes, yeah. yes. How's that what, been? What can I say about Ali Risk? Maybe we should just spend the whole hour talking about her. <laughs> I, I can totally do that. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Obviously, we became... Uh, very close. I'll tell you a funny story, but I'll give you the abbreviated version since, you know, this is, uh, this is going out to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, but I, I, my cousin and I, we were, we were playing a tournament. He was coaching me. Um, it, it was one of the grass court tournaments leading up to Wimbledon. And, and Ali Risk was there. And, you know, we had kind of, you know, bumped into each other and seen each other. I guess Stephen and her had known each other previously, and that was my first time meeting her. And, you know, she, she, we had all lost, so, you know, we were, we were all having a beer together. And we hung out. She, it was me, Stephen Amitraj, and Rajiv Ram, who, who I'm sure you guys know, and, uh, and Ali. And Ali literally left the room, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Stephen, Stephen wasn't, you know, married at the time. And uh, I literally looked over to Steven as the minute she walked out of the room and I'm like, yo, that's who needs to be your wife. Wow. Like literally that is her. She wow. was, I mean, she's just, she is a shining light guys. I mean, I, I've seen the way she makes people feel when she plays matches and, mm. uh, but just, just knowing her the way I do um, all, all through 2019 and the beginning of this year, before the pandemic closed, I actually uh, worked with her as her mental coach. Um, she works with Billy Heiser and, you know, of course, Stevie, and she's got a great team, physio, all this stuff. But just on the mental side, I was working with her, and, you know, she had such a phenomenal year last year. And to get inside her competitive head, not, not the family version that we, we all know each other for, it was, it was a beautiful thing, you know, to see what makes her tick and uh, to see that come out in such a beautiful way on the court in the way she was battling last year, it was, it, it was one of the most rewarding things to see. And in the middle of this whole thing, I got to be the best man at the wedding last year. That is awesome. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, before we get off of your family, because we want to move on to your playing career, um, one of the things that I, I, I want to bring up to you, one of my memories as a child, is I was raised in Cincinnati. And I can't remember what year it was. It maybe was 84 or around that time. I remember just thinking, like, I looked at the schedule at the ATP tournament there. It was called just the ATP tournament, I think, at that time, before Western Southern and Southern. And I remember seeing BJ was going to be playing John McEnroe. And, you know, I don't even think it was televised, but I saw it in a newspaper, and I was like, okay, John's going to win that because I think John was – that was the summer that John was just like yeah, killing everybody. Yeah. And then I think that night, either on the news or the next day, I, I looked in the paper and I saw that 
<laughs> your dad has said, you know what, John? I don't care what you've been doing all summer, but this is not your day. And, <laughs> and I'm going to let you have it. And I, that's when, although I was familiar with your dad's name at that point, that was the defining moment for I was like, okay, who is this beach? I've putting a smackdown on John McEnroe like this. Uh, I can think it was a very close match, but um, that will always kind of stick out in my head, you know, um, because that was a big tournament for me. Tournament for me every year in Cincinnati. That's right. That's that that's, that's just interesting. I'll give you a little story about that. So that you were completely right. 1984, Mac only lost two matches that year. One to the famous one to Lendl at the French. And right after he won Wimbledon to, to Pops in Cincinnati. And it's funny because Pops, his, I, I would say his best tennis years were really more, I, I'd say, 73 to 81. Uh-huh. You know, he started getting a little bit older, um, you know, 84, 85, and, and started uh, waning off as he, as he moved into Hollywood. But this match against Mac, who was obviously, you know, at, at his prime, Dad right. always says this was when they ask him what was your single best tennis match quality wise, he said it was this one. Pops was working with Roy Emerson at the time, Ooh. the great Roy Emerson who Sampras was chasing for so many years, and uh, Mo actually gave him like strict game plan on how to play Mac. And I mean, it's not to say you can always execute it, but Pops executed it down to a T that day. He didn't get close to getting broken. He didn't get broken one set match and, uh, and closed it out. Three sets, I think it was six, seven, and then and straight sets after that. But he always looks at that match as, as his personal uh, best, best quality match. That is awesome. Because like I said, I will always remember that. I, there's only a few times you remember as a, as a child being shocked. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and your dad has that distinction with me. Because <laughs> I think I was maybe like 14, 13 or 14, right. you know, at that time. Right. Well, you know, what we want to do for our audience is, you know, I'm assuming most of our audience probably knows you more for your presence on the TV channel, on tennis channel and media. I want to bring everyone up to speed on your playing career. So could you kind of walk us through kind of what was your your playing history like in juniors at at USC uh, when you were on the pro tour? Absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned, you know, picked up the game quite young, but uh, I kind of caught the bug when I was nine and a half years old, you know, I go to Wimbledon every year with pops and, you know, there was, there's a champion's locker room, like a, like a A player's locker room and a B player's locker room. Right. So the A A player's locker room was, you know, all the legends that you geek out over and pops and everyone was in there. So I was hanging in this locker room all summer as this kid. And I found myself literally that summer sitting on the bench in between Sampras and Becker. And this is, this is 93, I believe. So wow. this, this is the summer in which I'm going to be 10 in like in three, four months in October. And I was, I was nine and a half. And I literally remember thinking, this is what I want to do. This, I mean, <laughs> like you just, you get these, these feels that you just can't duplicate. I came back that end of that summer, won my first junior tournament in the tens in the, in the fall, just a tiny little event. And then, you know, after that, I started practicing twice a day. I would, like, beg Dad to get up in the morning before I'd go to school at 6 in the morning and then come back and play after school. But I was no good. <laughs> I wasn't winning in the 10s. 
I wasn't winning in the 12s. Guys, you know all these juniors. Uh, they're, they're number one in the 12s, number one in the 14s, yeah. number one in the, you know, all the way through. The first time I ever made it to a national tournament was the 16s clay course. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's rough. But, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to Pops because he was like, yo, Indian genetics just tend to uh, mature physically a little bit later. And, yo, I was a guy who loved to serve in volley and played more of an all-court game, whereas, you know, a lot of the players back then were just kind of looping the ball as they do in juniors, making a lot of balls in play. So you kind of max out, whereas, you know, a more attacking game takes time to develop. So stayed on, stayed on Pops' program, and um, then I just kept getting better. And then last year in the 18s, I ended up winning the 18s Kalamazoo. Um, oh, which nice. was, which I think I saw some article, I think it was like the fourth toughest Kalamazoo of all time. Um, we had some good players in there. We had Brian Baker, uh, Rajiv Ram, John Isner. Um, it was, it was pretty stuck. It was a, it was a good event and, um, nice. and, and, and came through. So that was, that was really special for me. 30 years after Pops played his first U.S. Open, I played my first U.S. Open. Oh, which was, really a really special uh, uh event there, there are quite a few of those actually which i'm i just could not be more grateful for because uh, i grew up you know idolizing pop so to have you know certain things that linked to his career is always going to be very special um I, I think to this day in the open era we're the only father and son to be number one for a country which is oh. which is really cool and you know i grew up hearing these stories of you know, Pops' heroics in Davis Cup. So it was it was always my dream to be able to pour those blood, sweat, and tears out for India. And on a personal level, it's weird. I'm sure we'll get into this later. But I was, of course, born in the States. But I spent so much time in India, and I'm so deeply connected to my roots. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm I'm one of those people who feel blessed enough to be sort of full of two different cultures. You know, yeah. I'm first generation yeah. here. And, and I think it can go both ways. It's sometimes you feel, yo, I don't belong to either because over here, you're not American enough, you know, right. or, or over there, you're not Indian enough. But, you know, as you as you grow and you mature, you realize, wait a minute, we're all of us are everything, you yes. know, and if you can keep yes. that open mentality, first of all, I think uh, there would be a lot less division in this world right yes and and second of all i mean look we we are all an amalgamation of everything especially today where the world is man so much smaller you know every little bit of everything is influencing you i mean look i'm as la and west coast as you can possibly get but at the same time (laughs) i have i have every bit of my grandmother's values still like deeply in me you know and it's a it's a beautiful thing so i think that's what led me to wanting to play Davis Cup for India at that time in my career. Um, shortly after uh, that summer, that summer was a special summer. I, I won Kalamazoo. We won the national title at USC. I was, I was a freshman there and kind of led them to the title. I won the deciding last three matches in the quarter semis and finals oh, at, nice. uh, at College Station to win it. So, um, and, and they knew I was just, you know, uh, idolize Ali. So the whole team, I'll never forget this. In the semifinals, we're playing Tennessee, and Tennessee's coach was Michael Fanka. Great, he was a good player. 
in his time, and he tried hard to recruit me. <laughs> because he was a big serving volley guy. He mm. loved serving volley players. I was playing Adam Carey in match number seven. All the matches are stopped. Everyone's watching this match. ESPN's covering it. You know, first televised match. And the whole team at the top of their lungs are chanting Prakash Bumbaye, Prakash Bumbaye. <laughs> and, and, you know, that gave me all the feels. I won the match. Took off my shirt, flexed for the crowd. <laughs> there you go. The whole, the whole embarrassing thing was on ESPN, but we we came through, and then uh, I didn't even know this was an award. They gave me the most valuable player of the finals after we after I clinched the title. Wow. Awesome! That is awesome, man. I, I mean, I feel like I'm learning a lot in this interview. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Awesome. And Prakash, when, was that the point where you were like, I'm ready to go pro? Is that kind of what, what kind of made that decision happen for you? You know, guys, it was, it was a different time back then. <laughs> now people can go to college for three, four years and develop as, as humans. Which, by the way, I got, you know, a lot of opinion on now as opposed to uh, when I was 18. At 16, 17, I was just, you know, you're going to keep playing juniors and you're going to go pro like everybody else does. No one went to college at that time. And all the players, they end up stopping at 30. So it was, it was kind of a big decision to go to college at the time. But, you know, after Kalamazoo, I'd had all these scholarships everywhere. So, you know, uh, I spoke to my parents and I'm like, okay, I'm definitely going to go. Uh, I kind of narrowed my choices down to USC and Stanford. Took a trip both places, but it really came down to me just wanting to be closer to my parents, so I stayed in LA, and mm-hmm. um, you know I had a I had a beautiful experience there, and and I wanted to actually turn pro after we won that national title. I'm like, yo, I, I it's time to turn pro because all of my uh, fellow colleagues who were the same age they had already gone pro, you mm. know. So I, I'm like, yo, it it is time. I'm wasting time here. Everyone retires at 2930, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But yeah. that was when Dick Leach was the coach who. I'm so thankful I played for. I got to play one year under one of the most legendary coaches of all time. And then Peter Smith came in. We took a meeting. And Peter basically convinced me to come back and play one more season. So that's how that went down. So I, I played one more season for Peter, which was you know, really great for de- my development. And, and really continued to build that bond with USC, which, which I hold actually really strong. Even, even to this day, they bring me back to speak to the you know, players and kids, and I still kind of mentor some of them. So I'm really thankful for that one more year that I spent before going pro. Absolutely. That is awesome. And I mean, Prakash, that, I mean, you've had a great, uh, a great overall tennis career, but one of the things that you are also known for, <laughs> very widely known for, is your fitness. Your fitness, dude, is insane. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's insane. Uh, talk to us about what 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 sparked that fire? Because I mean, of course, you can't be you know you know you can't quite look the way that you look now on the tennis court because it tends to work against you as it relates to you know your game. What what kind of made you push in the direction of fitness and just get so blasted physically fit, man? So jacked, yeah, so jacked. <laughs> 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 you guys are you guys are absolutely right because right now there's no way I could finish my forehand follow through over over my chest right now. Okay. No key flex, no. Right? <laughs> oh, 
I'll give you I'll give you the full the full rundown here. Um, I I got to backtrack to the tour for this all to make sense. So went went through the tour and again had some beautiful experiences. Played at you know the Grand Slams. Had some great wins. Uh, played well at the Newport Hall of Fame tournament, which mm-hmm. Pops did so well at. Made the final there. Um, some pretty you know memorable Davis Cup matches and wins and so forth. So thankful for all that. But I wasn't ever quite able to, I mean, look, there were some injuries too. I had a couple surgeries and really only played one full 12 month season. Most of the seasons were, you know, riddled with some injuries here and there, but there was a time in 2010 when I, you know, hurt my wrist and I really took a step back from the game. And I said, you know what, for the first time in my life, I'm not enjoying this. And I took a step back and just said, you know what, I'm going to jump into my next biggest passion. I mean, look, growing up, it was always movies and tennis, movies and tennis. And, you know, I had done so much, you know, acting as a kid and stuff in school. This was my other passion. So I'm like, boom, just take that work ethic and, and put it into there. So I started training, you know, with, with a really good acting studio here, then kind of graduated, went to, you know, one of, the, one of the best ones in LA, learned a ton. But through that process, which is, you know, nothing but what? The study of other human beings, right? As a tennis player, you're so involved in yourself, which you should be, which you need to be, you kind of forget to take into consideration other people's perspectives. So this whole study of other individuals really helped mature me as as an individual myself. And at the same time that this was happening, I became really close with Venus and Serena. It was right around that time. So we just, we literally just started kind of hanging together, partying. And next thing you know, we were, we, we just, we became, you know, really, really close. So we had spent a lot of time together during that time. And up look, I spent a lot of time with their family as well, but I'm going to pinpoint this down to 2012 Wimbledon. I was there as a spectator for the first time. And I was sitting on the lawn, uh, that little lawn next to the uh, players sort of, uh, building, you know, where the restaurant, everything is with, uh, with Richard Williams. And, you know, we'd all spent time together before, but we must've sat and had like a, like a three hour talk that day. Wow. And wow. I, 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 gentlemen, this is no exaggeration. I was, I was in a different world. You know, I, I started working on my next career, which was acting and so forth and just been done. I literally finished that conversation, went back to the hotel uh, saw Pops because he was he was there obviously commentating and playing the seniors. Mm-hmm. Told him, "Yo, I I, I got to go back." And I changed my flight to leave the next day. Went back, picked up a racket, literally practiced for like six weeks, and got back on the tour. And, wow. And I'll tell you why. I had realized I had a bunch of blocks in 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 my sort of the way I was thinking. And it was just so beautiful to listen to Richard and spend so much time with these girls. They, they opened up my way of thinking. It was almost like they spoke to a seed that was inside of me as a kid and that I, I was watering you know, as a kid for so long. But then I guess I hadn't watered in such a long time. Mm-hmm. And they, they really spoke to that. And that's really where my whole what's your code philosophy, which you know, I've now, I, I write about in GQ, I go and speak to, you know, other uh, upcoming athletes and stuff about that's kind of where it, it started. And then my return to the tennis tour was really about, yo, I do not care about a single result. All I am trying to do 
is max out my potential. I just want to find out whatever God gave me, I'm just going to find out how good I can be. I don't, I don't, I don't have any excuses like I may have had before. I just want to find out. So after like a year and a half of literally not touching a racket, I mean, I was on the couch, you know, in a different life within, uh, two months, I had, uh, one couple of futures. And then, you know, uh, another month later qualified once a matches in a ATP tour event. So, you know, was back to playing that level and, you know, as destiny would have it, shoulders started bugging. Next thing I knew when I, when I got it checked, it was a torn labrum, torn rotator cuff and two bone spurs that had to be shaved down. So, you know, I kind of, I kind of had to make a life decision at that point. And by the way, I, I, in a roundabout way, I'm getting to your answer about this. Honestly, I apologize because I, I, we want to hear about your professional career. We want to hear about this. So no, my apologies for jumping over that because we want this. So please, please take, take all the time you need. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. So I, you know, at that juncture, I'm, I'm 30 years old and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm obviously thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, when I was, when I was a kid and a little bit more one dimensional and I'm, and, and I'm thinking to myself, yo, you got this period right now where you can rehab, you can go back to the tour and you're going to commit the next decade of your life to the game. Right. And you're going to finish up maybe around 40 because at that point you're thinking about it more expansively as opposed to a kid. So you're like, you know what? I'll continue playing as long as I can, maybe stretch it out, whatever it may be, or you go a different path. And all these other goals that I had in my life, I was going to have to start from scratch. Everyone else in those goals had a 30-year head start. So I did some soul searching, and it wasn't easy. You know, I mean, there were, there were times where I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision. And I decided, you know what, 30 to 35, I'm going to use this as building years. I'm going to go back to the well, start from scratch, and literally learn all these new careers from the absolute beginning. The acting, the film producing, and, you know, being in front of the camera, all that stuff, a- any of the stuff that I wanted to get into, I'm going to go start from scratch. So that's really what 30 to 35 was about. And now I come to your, I come to your answer. I have to give you that whole, that whole prologue first before I come to the answer. Um, okay. So during this time period, I mean, I had been introduced to sort of weight training fitness at the latter part of my tennis career. And I really enjoyed it because on the tour, you, you, you can't do that. You have to stay limber. You have to stay flexible. Right, you, right. It's just a different, I mean, look, look at Fed and look at, you know, Djokovic and these guys, greatest athletes in the world, but muscles, a hindrance. You right. Know? Right. So when I left number one, obviously you're going to have to stay, you know, I'm used to training eight hours a day. You can't just stop that cold Turkey when you go into the business world. So number one, I needed something to fill that void, right? So that was, that was one check, check mark that, that this physical training got me. Number two, I'm a big, big proponent of you got to have something in your life that is a metaphor for everything else that you have 100% control over that as you train that muscle, it translates into everything else in life. Because we all know so many things in life you can't control. So how do you deal with that? You know, how do you get your sort of belief muscle so strong you can deal with all that stuff? The simplest way to explain it is when you're in the gym, guys, think about it. If you're trying to lift, let's just call it a 15-pound weight the first week and you lift it up 10 times, 
your body physically tells you you cannot lift at the 11th, right? Mm. But right. you do it two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. By the fifth week, you're lifting it up 14 times. So mm-hmm. you have physically trained yourself to believe the concept that something that was once physically impossible is now possible. Uh-huh. So, so this, that's check mark number two, where you're physically training yourself to be able to achieve anything and believe in, in yourself to like a, to a capability where the world doesn't put limitations on you. Now, yeah. by the way, all of the stuff I'm saying, all the mental components goes back to that seed being watered that I got from my grandmother, my father. And then, you know, that time with Venus, Serena and Richard and, and their whole family, you know, watered that seed so much. So I always call that period 2010 when I was around 28 years old, a little bit of a rebirth, you know, for me. Nice. And it's kind of been it's kind of just been like on a I just want to be a better me every single day since then. And then the last check mark I'll say for, for why I do it is, guys, uh, I know you know about trying to battle and overcome stereotypes. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, grew, I grew up and my greatest acting influences and, and, you know, where my greatest talent lies, you know, in performance is, is I mean, it's influenced by, you know, Will and Eddie. Jamie Foxx, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Martin Lawrence, this kind of yes. fast talk, improv type stuff. So, uh, you know, th- that kind of, you know, leading male on, on that side has not been seen in Hollywood in an American of my background. And right. number two, yo, we don't need to always be the nerd or the engineer or <laughs> the one who's on the side. Why can't we not go save the day? That's you know? Right. That's right. So, this this physical appearance is also to kind of you know set the stage for um, breaking those barriers and being like oh wow uh, a person of Indian heritage can look like this you know you know I have a quick question because you brought the cultural piece up and forgive me if he's not Indian but who the guy who was on um, Silicon Valley. Um, the, um, he was in that movie, uh, Stuber. Yes, yes. Uh, Indian? Uh, he, he's Pakistani, but, he's Pakistani, but yeah, he's okay. South Asian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because he, he jumped in my mind when you said, you know, people haven't seen us in those kind of leading roles. And right. he's been someone who seems like he's starting he's to get, you know, yes. some of those roles. And I also know that he, he recently shot a Marvel movie where he got jacked. Yep. <laughs> you know. He, uh, yo, he made he made an unbelievable transformation. I mean, he was he was known on the comedic side, and you know had that had that little extra that we all carry from time to time. <laughs> right. And, and, and he 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 put in work. You know, he, he put in work. The guy looks great, and he's trying to he's trying to make changes. The thing is, everyone's so happy about. And I know you guys will feel me on this. Everyone's so happy about representation. But right. that's, that's a start, you know? Representation is a start. But just because you have an Indian in it or a South Indian in it doesn't mean that that's the only type of Indian and South Asian there is in the world. I mean, there's a whole wide range within each culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a, there's a beautiful thing happening right now in, in Hollywood, and, and we're, we're trying to be a part of it, not just on the acting side, but on the storytelling side, the creation side, the ownership side, and, and just get involved. Because, I mean, look, on one hand, people will say, yo, movies are movies. But on the other hand, I say, yo, media, movies, uh, uh, even sports, all this stuff, 
it impacts culture and it leaves a historic footprint. So yeah. it's it's just as important as other things. You just have to kind of follow wherever your heart is. You know, you'll be able to make an impact wherever that is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, what you are saying is just so spot on, uh, Prakash. Because again, it's all about again making those, just really making those impacts, if you will, and 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 getting out there and. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. Um, Prakash, talk to us a little bit about just with all of that you've done on the fitness side, with the acting, with the film, how did broadcasting and being an analyst come into that, <laughs> to that picture? Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a roundabout way that stuff, that stuff comes, comes to you. It's, it's crazy. Um, but uh, I mean, look, I'm, I'm in the one of the most happiest places I've ever been right now. And uh, and I, I can certainly tell you what broadcasting means to me. But the way it the way it came about was, I think it was about maybe 2014. And uh, we were producing a, a tennis league in India. And, um, you know, we had Venus and Hingis and Philippusis, some legends. We had Bautista Agut, Baghdadis, a bunch of the current players, Fonini, uh, uh, Flavia Panetta, really yeah. awesome field. And yeah. we had a bunch of commentators. Uh, we had like Luke Jensen, Mark Woodford, um, a, a great group. But I, I think I think we were short one person. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually jumped in and did the commentary for those two weeks with the team oh. and kind of got a little bit of sweat equity there, you know, and uh you know, there were some, there were some, you know, kind of fumbling moments as we all have when we're learning stuff, but it, it felt great. It felt natural. I loved, you know, after being out of the game, being able to talk about my first love, you know, and I had played with all these guys. So I, I knew so many beautiful things about them, which, which a lot of people don't know. And I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but, you know, I, I will say one of my favorite things about, you know, this fortunate position I have is the fact that the average person, you know, only knows the top three guys, you know, and maybe the, the couple superstars on the female side. But right. I think our sport is an untapped mine because yes. there are so many beautiful, amazing stories out there from all of these guys and girls. And man, these people are stars. You get them in the right light. You make them feel a certain way when they're in front of the camera. They shine like a star. And for me, for a sport to be good and successful, like I, I was the biggest NBA fanatic for so, you know, when I was growing up all the way through maybe about, you know, uh, five years ago, six years ago, I watched a little bit less now, but I knew every player in the league, Right. you know, not just, not just the big superstars. So right. I, I love that aspect about being able to do this. Um, but, but, but after doing the league for a couple of years, I was obviously doing that in India. And Star Sports, which is the biggest carrier there in Asia, they cover Wimbledon. So they said, you know what? You know the players well. Why don't you cover Wimbledon for us? So I went and did Wimbledon for, for two years, uh, 15 and 16. And then uh, BN Sports got wind of that. And they said, yo, come and do some work with us. So I covered the Doha tournament in person there for a couple of years. I did Wimbledon one more year for them. But this time for them, I got to do the studio gig instead of being on the ground. So I got some experience there. And then slowly, Tennis Channel 
it was kind of random. They gave me like a shot to do uh, a, a one minute clinic. You guys seen those one minute clinics? Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yep. I did a I did a one minute clinic and they loved it. So they're like, you know what? We got this little thing called court report. Why don't you mm. come and try that? Huh. So I did that for a little bit. Then they tried me out for a, a couple college match days, and uh, and then it just kind of moved on from there. I did my first commentary week for Newport, where I had done well, a little bit of on camera, and then the big jump was, uh, you know, the heads of production there, Bob Wiley and executive producer Ross Schneiderman. They said, you know what, we're going to try something we've never done before, and try to send someone on the ground, which they had never done. So. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying it at a small tournament, they're like, yo, we're going to try it at the Nitto Finals in London. <laughs> so they said, Prakash, we, we want you to go. So I said, okay, what do I do? They're like, well, we, we haven't done this before, but, you know, we want you to go there, do color pieces, do features, do openings, closings, and interview the players. I said, wow. okay, sounds, so, sounds like something I can do. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I I went there and we had a we had a beautiful team. I think we had a three or four person team, and I just I went to town. I just spoke to every <laughs> single guy there, and it, it was great because I was so thankful. I knew all these pe- people because mm-hmm. I played with all them, so it went great. And then about ten days later, I got an email from them saying, "Listen, we want to make this like like a like the Prakash Worldwide Tour, and, and do a hundred days in 2019." And that's how this this whole thing kind of started. Um, but I, I do I just want to take this moment too. I got to give so much love to Tennis Channel because you know when I when I started, I I was trying to be as professional and proper as I could. Right. <laughs> and and I literally uh, get a message from. Um, you know, there's there's people who run each each program, right? Right, each team. So mm-hmm. I, I would send we would send our stuff back, and I got a message early in Australia. They're like, "Yo, we hired you to be you." You're right. So you go, yeah. we yeah. want you. To, I'm like, guys, I don't, I'm not really sure if you want that. Like, really? Unadulterated pee. They're like, yes, the more pee, the better. So the next interview, this was literally in the middle of the day at the ATP Cup. So I'm like, all right, man, let, let's do it. So I, I went up and it was Monfils. So I'm like, hey, what? because we've known each other forever. So we were out there. We did the interview. Then I'm like, at the end, I'm like, yo, man, so show me how we do this. All right? let, let, let's give him a little uh, victory sign at the end. So we both did the Wakanda salute and we were having a blast. And then I sent it back and they were like, this is what I'm talking about. And I said, listen, I, I love you guys. I love you guys. That is awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, it seems like you guys have so much fun. Um, And don't get me wrong. I know it's a lot of work and and all of that. But the people that I see on the Tennis Channel seem to genuinely enjoy what they're doing. Right. I'm glad they let the pee out for college. Because let me tell you, that is why. (laughs) Seriously. Because you are just, just you bring your your authentic self, and we can see that, mm-hmm. and we enjoy it. As fans of yours, we absolutely enjoy that. So happy about And that. it's funny, because I wonder if they had a similar type uh, conversation with Chanda. Right. Because you, you, you can mm-hmm. see when she started to let the sister girl come out exactly. a little more. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let the sister girl out. Behind the sister girl now. Come on now. I will say, I guess, about all my colleagues there too. It's 
you know, it's a little bit, uh, 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 I'm not even sure what the word is, but it's, uh, guys, I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like one, it's like a family over there, you know, because yeah. everyone is so secure in, I guess, who they are. So mm-hmm. no one's trying to step on the next person's shoes, you know? And I think when there's such a great deal of respect, like I got, I mean, look, look at my colleagues, guys, you know, uh, you know, Paul Anacone, who I'm doing a lot of stuff with, who I I, I literally call him the Phil Jackson. (laughs) I mean, that guy coached Jordan and Kobe. This guy coached, you know, Sampras and and Fed. Just just about the same number of coach rings. So, you know, you got you got him. Mary Carrillo's just, you know, one of the best storytellers out there to do it. And then. You know, I, I mean, you should, you guys should talk to Jim at some point, Courier. Every time I'm with the guy, I try to just like, I bite his, I bite his ear off because I you, just want to go, I just want to go sit with him and just listen to stories. Do you, you know, know what, I, Prakash, I don't mean to interrupt you, but Isaac, as my witness, what did I say like a couple of weeks ago? Yep. I, I saw Jim on something yep. and I, I texted Isaac or I called Isaac and I said, I love Jim Courier. We got to get him on the show. That is so funny that you said that. That's exactly what you said. Because Guys, he would be, he would give you some insane stories. And yo, at the same time, yo, the nineties, that was yes. my decade. I grew yeah. up on that decade. So yep. to listen to him tell these stories. And by the way, he talks to you like he's, he's one of the boys. And I'm like, bro, you're not one of the boys. You're number one, four-time Grand Slam champ. All this stuff. So it's it's a beautiful thing when people who are just absolute legends like that, you know, just make it make it so comfortable. You know, it's a it's just a great atmosphere for to to bring out that common love for the game, which is really what the network is about. Absolutely, man. So, Prakash, talk to us about some of the other things that you do that's beyond even just the broadcasting broadcasting work that you do. Um, I'll give you guys a quick rundown. So, I mean, you guys know I'm on the acting side. I've uh, I've done I've done a few things on on there and and the producing side. It's weird because I, I'm not. I guess everything I'm doing, it's not being done in the traditional sense. When I say that, you you generally build up one silo of you know multiple careers and then you know like like any of these big actors you see and then that becomes so big off the back of that you can build a production company or you can leverage it into something else i'm kind of all these things that i love so much i'm kind of trying to build up at the same time so you know the, the broadcasting has been has been so great i've been so fortunate um to you know to be to be with such a great family there on the acting and producing side um Everything's coming along uh, uh, beautifully. You know, the first film we did out of our company starred um, Jamie Dornan, who was the, the you know, Mr. Uh, Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, okay, we had, yeah. Um, we had him. We had Ben Mendelsohn, uh, who's a good friend, who starred in Star Wars and uh, Captain mm-hmm. Marvel, and he won an Emmy for Bloodline. Um, and we had, you know, Hollywood legend Billy Crystal in it. I was in it also. And we got a spotlight world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. Which was which was very cool, Um, and just you know learned an insane amount. As as you'd be surprised how much you learn if all you want to do is learn. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, So 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 that's been going well, and um, and right now we actually this year we've spent the whole year kind of developing projects. It wasn't a production year for us, which was 
man, God's blessing because you know of the way everything is. So right. we've yeah. just been we've been knee deep in development, and um, hopefully we'll be production on uh, uh, a couple of films and a TV show next year, which will be uh, which will be real exciting. And um, you know, I got I got a good team behind me on the acting side, so kind of auditioning for the right projects here and there, and um, and just enjoying it, you know, kind of. Uh, my cousin Steven actually came over like a week or two ago and we were just having this conversation because he's doing really well in UTR where he's the chief tennis officer is making mm-hmm. some right. giant moves. And, you know, we were having a nice reflective talk. We had played a round of golf and, you know, we're having, having some dinner afterwards. Uh, Pops was there with us too. And actually Anand, uh, dad's older brother, who's Steven's dad, it was all four of us. So it was such a beautiful oh, wow. r- reflective time. Um, and we were talking and, uh, you know, Stephen knows me so well and the stuff that I enjoy doing and where my heart is at. And I was telling him uh, that, yo, I-, I could have, you know, all the money in the world and I'd still be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you might be doing bigger movies or this or that, but it's you're still getting to do what you want to do. So it's a uh, it, it, I just feel really thankful and really blessed right now. You know, absolutely. That is awesome. And what about like your writings? Um, well, that just kind of came out of, out of nowhere, really. Uh, last year in, uh, February, someone reached out to me from India saying, man, I've seen your Instagram. You know, I cannot believe this physical transformation. Can I do an article on you? So I said, yeah, sure. So, uh, he wrote this article. It was, it was called Amitraj Rebuilt. Amitraj <laughs> so they put out this, this thing. And, uh, and next thing I know, the head of Condi Nast in India reaches out to me. And says, hey, man, we love, you know, this transformation you've done and, and the sort of the positivity you bring. Would you consider writing a column for us? You know, writing a feature. I said, OK, cool. Like, are you thinking just a column or how long are you thinking? He's like, no, no, we want to do a two page spread in our magazine. So I said, OK, great. And I told him the concept. I started going a little bit deeper. And he's like, yo, we want to do this every month. So I said, uh, fantastic. And, and GQ is you know, it's, it's just, I've loved that magazine forever. So I did my premiere article for them in July, where I literally pretty much in, in two pages, tell a bit of the story that I told you guys about sort of, you know, developing this what's your code philosophy and a bit of my life story and uh, how Venus and Serena impacted my life. And, uh, and, and it went from there. And now I've been writing for them for 18 months. Um, I just hosted this morning their primetime segment for GQ's uh, first ever food and drink festival with um, uh, one of the biggest actresses in uh, Bollywood uh, who's, um, you know, just into fitness and all sorts of stuff. So that went well. And I'm doing a lot of video content for them. And GQ's now the it's the second most viewed GQ in the entire world just behind the U.S., which which has been really cool. And uh, I got to give a shout out to the editor-in-chief over there as well, Che Kurian, who, uh, you know, we've really vibed and, and he's been so great in wanting to grow uh, this whole, you know, inspiration, positivity um, brand that I, that I keep bringing. He, uh, he, he wrote a beautiful uh, editor's letter in April's issue, which was the issue I, I wrote my whole article on, on Kobe and, you know, what he meant to me and, um, and what I thought everyone can, can learn from him. And, um, you know, he, he said that it's, it's really become one of GQ's prized assets, this, this feature that I bring each month. And f- for me, it's just, 
you guys ever hear that expression you know if you if you want something you just give it out as much as you can into the universe uh, uh, yes. yeah at, right. mm -hmm. at some point in my life i kind of realized because we're all chasing something right oh, yeah. um i think when you can kind of narrow in on exactly what who you who what you're about who you are i think it simplifies a lot of your decisions I mean, in, a, in an essence, that's your whole, that's the whole, what's your code philosophy? I, I, basically, I feel every man and woman needs a code, right? And a code is these overarching set of principles and beliefs that you just believe in so emphatically, it trickles down and influences even the most minute decisions you make on a daily basis. And when I think back to being nine years old, what was it that really inspired me? Was it the winning? Was it the competitive? Well, what was it at, at the highest level? And honestly, for me, it was inspiration. You know, when I'd, when I'd watch Boris Becker play, it, you know, it, it, it gave me like a special feeling. You know, right, when right. I listened to Pops' stories, I, I'd literally be in Korea playing like some tournament. Pops would be across the world. He'd talk to me for 15 minutes on the phone and I felt like I could fly. Mm. You know, there are certain movies you've seen, um, you know, whether it's Ali or Remember the Titans or whatever it may be that... They, they literally make you feel like you can fly. Yeah. And that's basically what so much of what I do has, has become about. You know, before I leave this earth, I want to create, you know, a movie or a role that'll just kind of last lifetimes after you're gone, the way so many of these things affected me. Even on an everyday basis, if you can just affect one person's life that no one else knows about, you know what? That's, you're still giving that same thing out into the universe. Because that's what makes you feel special, whether you're giving it, receiving it, or just being a part of it. So I guess so much of it kind of boils down to that for me. Okay, listeners, as you can tell, we're having a really good conversation with Prakash. And we've made an executive decision halfway through. Yes. Uh, we're going to make this a two-part uh, episode. So this we're going to close part one here and we're, we'll do part two in a few minutes so this has been your boy bryce and this is your boy isaac and we are brothers on tennis hope you enjoyed part one look forward to part two next week <laughs>